My name is Terrence Taylor. I'm the associate, one of the pastors on staff here. And if you haven't seen me before, that's because I have also served at another church in Tri-Cities in Pasco. And so I'm often at both places and sometimes at the same time. But I am so glad to be here uh, with you this morning. Our lead pastor is Pastor Sergio Menente. He's not here today. But if this is your first time visiting, we're glad that you came. Make sure you fill out a Connect card and make sure you come back to hear him preach. You'll, you'll enjoy it and the word that is being pre- uh, preached. And we have some great preachers and leaders in our church. We're just blessed and a gift that way. And so on any given Sunday, as in football would be, if the, if the backup gets a chance to go, he's got to go for it. So I'm going to go for it today. And just preach a message to you that uh, of something that really God's been stirring in my heart for a couple couple weeks. And as I was preparing and praying for this, uh, trying to see how it would bless you the way it blessed me, I'm excited to really share uh, what God has shown me. How are you guys doing today? You feeling good? I feel good too. We always feel good when you have the opportunity to come into the house of the Lord on your own two feet. And that nobody is, is, is dragging you here and you're here because you want to be here. And maybe some of you didn't want to be here and you did get dragged in. That's okay. That's because that person loves you and wants you to have Jesus in their life. So pray for them. Well, I want to start uh, from, with our text. I want to just get our text introduced. And it is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to... Read it in the NLT first, and then I'm actually going to preach uh, or really reference strongly the Message Bible, which I've never really done before, but the the translation there is so beautiful, and I love the way it reads, and it's appropriate for our message today. So let's look at that. Hopefully you can find it. Um, I need to just do a change here real quick and uh, find it this way. You can use your iPhone, iPad, but most importantly, I want you to use your eyelids, okay? So use those today. That would be the most important one to use. Okay, 1 Corinthians, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 18 and read to verse 20. Here's what it says. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you does not waver between yes and no. For Jesus Christ, the Son of God, does not waver between yes and no. He is the one whom Silas, Timothy, and I preach to you and is God's ultimate yes. He always does what he says. That'd be a good sermon right there. Well, we got to keep going. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And through Christ our amen, which means yes, ascends to the glory of God. We're going to actually read the verse 22. It is God who enables us along with you to stand firm for Christ. He has commissioned us and he is, has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he has promised us. Now I want to read it in the message 
version. And from verse 20 to 22, it says, Whatever God has promised gets stamped with the yes of Jesus. Man, that's good. Whatever God has promised gets stamped with the yes of Jesus. In him, this is what we preach and pray. The great amen. God's yes and our yes together. Gloriously evident. God affirms us. Somebody say affirms us. Making us a sure thing in Christ. Putting his yes within us. By his spirit, he has stamped us with his eternal pledge. A sure beginning of what he is destined to complete. By his spirit, he has stamped us with his eternal pledge. A sure beginning of what he has destined to complete. Can you help me preach this morning? Look at somebody next to you. Look at your neighbor. Your neighbor today is somebody next to you. That's, so you're still looking at me. I would love to be your neighbor. But today your neighbor is somebody right next to you. Look at them right in the face. You're still looking at me. Look at them in the face. Put on a big old Adventist smile and say, neighbor, oh neighbor, you've been stamped with approval. Let's try the other neighbor. They didn't get it. They were texting or they weren't being spiritual. They weren't being reverent in the house. Try the other neighbor. Say neighbor, oh neighbor, you've been approved. Let's pray. Father God, what a, what a moment this is to sit here together in this place, in this gathering, this assembly of believers that we might hear the word being preached to us and for us. We recognize, Lord, that we are blessed beyond all measure to hear this word in safety and in peace and those of our brothers and sisters across the world who are starving and desiring to meet in a place like this. We don't take it for granted. But we pray that this message will go far-reaching past today, but into our lives and into this community, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. What a text to unpack. This is theological uh, calculus. Paul is a master theologian and unpacks so much in this particular text that the message version is not a version I'm using to sort of dumb it down or make it simple, but the way Dr. Patterson translates this text in a way that just encapsulates a particular part of the message that Paul is sharing today. Paul is trying to be 100% clear about his message. Paul doesn't have any room to be unclear. And I'm going to tell you about the context of this particular passage and why he is writing in such a way in the book of 2 Corinthians. But I want you to first understand what Paul is feeling. Paul is feeling a little bit frustrated. He's feeling a little bit hesitant. And he's, but at the same time, he has this urgency about him because he has to be clear. There were people who were attacking Paul, and Paul had to make sure his character and his credibility was in place or this church was going to be 
in trouble. Paul had to make sure they understood what the gospel was, not only to understand it in a theological way or in a, in a way that's what we would maybe describe as academic, but he had to show it in practice. They had to see the gospel in the way he treated them. And if you see this Paul writing in 2 Corinthians, you will see as Paul is getting closer to the end of his life that this is a seasoned Paul. This is an articulate and, and very determined Paul. This is a Paul who's been through some stuff, who's had some stripes, some bumps, who has who's suffered on behalf of Christ. And Paul is coming in with authority, and he's doing his best to make sure this church in Corinth survives and grows and thrives. It's interesting as you get older that you begin to learn some things about life that make you better, that make you stronger, and you realize as you get older that your moments and your words, they matter. They have weight, and sometimes you recognize that there are certain seasons and there are certain moments when you have to make sure that the message gets across. Perhaps you have a teenager or a grandson or a granddaughter at that age, and you know you've only got their attention for about 30 seconds, and you got to make sure that you make the most of it. And you have to make sure that they're getting what you have to say. One of those things that I've learned as I'm getting older, actually it really wasn't as I'm getting older, is when I got married. And I want to celebrate uh, our newlyweds in the house. Can we just celebrate the newlyweds? Look, look, how, look how close they sit next to each other. That's right. That's so inspiring. Y'all just smiling and sitting next to each other. That, just keep doing that as long as you can. So one of the things when I was fresh and young in love, and I'm still fresh and young in love, but when I was really young and fresh in love, one of the things I realized that was annoying my wife, Missy, was I was too indecisive. Now, you know, you go to a restaurant, and I, I always admired people that could go uh, to the restaurant, and they'd say, you know, I'm going to get the vegetarian burrito, and they just close the menu. I used to be really impressed with that, because for me, I was a little indecisive. So if you worked in the restaurant or behind the counter, you wouldn't like me coming to the counter, because it would sound a little bit like this. Okay, I think I'm going to get the uh, number two, but you know what, last time I had, it, I had a large, and it wasn't... It wasn't, there was too much in that. Okay, let me get the number two uh, with, let me get it with uh, that to drink. Okay, then they start ringing out. Oh, you know what? Actually, can I just change that real quick? I, can you just make that one a supersize and then change that one? And they're like, you know, like this. And I'm like, oh, actually, actually, just go back. Don't even worry about it. Just go back to the thing. And I realized I was frustrating my wife because my wife was, kind of, she just, I like this with avocado. She's done. Bam. I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. And I would be, yeah, um, let me get this. And the line is just getting long behind me. And I'm like, uh, I, I'm not sure. I don't know. And I was getting frustrating. So then, you know what I said? I said, you know what? I'm going to be a little more decisive. I'm going to make up my mind. And I'm going to order the same thing all the time. Now, I realized that as I had looked up to people who I thought were very decisive or really just boring because they just picked the same thing every single time. But as I started picking the same thing every single time, I started to get a little confidence, started to get a little swag in how I ordered because I could make a decision, and I knew that I did not want to frustrate the waiter. 
And as I learned with food, I started to get a little bit better and get a little bit better. And eventually, what I started to do was when I make purchases, I'd make them a little more stronger because I would have done my research and I would have gone and done all those things and talked to myself out loud and looked crazy by myself instead of in front of my family. Because I realized, because I still talk to myself, I still have to go through the process. I just got to do it by myself. Can I just get anybody to sympathize with me this morning? Okay, I'm not by myself. Okay, I just want to make sure. Because to be, to be strong and to be direct and to be clear is a skill that comes from making mistakes. There's been times when I was indecisive about the wrong thing. There was times when I should have said something and I didn't. There are times when I did say something and I shouldn't. And Paul, I want you to understand how Paul's feeling here. See, Paul, in this particular passage, is, is writing to a church after some things went really bad. What had happened is that Paul had planned to visit this particular church. And what he didn't realize was that there were some false teachers that had kind of really came coming pretty strong in the church. And they were undermining everything Paul was doing. They were teaching the wrong thing. They were saying the wrong thing. And so what they said was Paul had intended to stop in Corinth, but he made a detour and he sent somebody else. Well, something went really bad. And they were saying, you know what, that Paul is indecisive. That Paul is a squanderer. He's a fraud. He's actually trying to deceive us. And these false teachers were building up a constituency of people who were beginning to solidify this narrative that Paul wasn't all that he said he was and that Paul was teaching things that weren't true. And so Paul said he wanted to send, he sent this letter, and actually Scripture he mentions this letter. It's lost now. We don't have the letter that he sent. But he sent this letter and then finally made a visit. And he writes this particular passage to set some things straight. Because he's got some problems with some false teaching. False teachers have told him people that you couldn't trust Paul. These false teachers said Paul is a little unreliable. Paul's a little wavery. He, he's not really clear about what he's going to do. And they had said, when Paul said he was going to visit and didn't show up, he's, as his phrase goes, talking out the, both sides of his mouth. And so Paul, what he had to do was he had to establish his credibility. He had to establish his character and make sure that they understood that Paul had a purpose for why he didn't come. The real reason why he didn't come, as we'll talk about in a second, is Paul was mad. Paul was heated, and he wanted to make sure, Paul said, look, these people have lost their mind. They're out of control, and knowing myself, I can't go over there and deal with it right now. Because if I go over and deal with it right now, it's going to be a problem. It's going to be a situation. So Paul intended to wait to show mercy to them. But while he's waiting to show mercy, false teachers are interpreting it as weakness. Paul's example of strength and patience and love and grace has been interpreted now by these false teachers that Paul's wishy-washy, he's, he's waffling, he's going back and forth. Have you ever felt that way as a parent? Can I just talk to the parents a little bit? Um, have you ever gone out to eat with your kids? 
children, grandchildren, and as soon as you get in the restaurant, they just act a complete fool. Right? They just act. Now, I can only talk to parents who actually discipline their children because that's getting rare. But I will say, if you're a parent who disciplines their child, and they, and they, and I'm talking about, I should say disciples their child is a better word, and they get in a public place, and they just completely act a fool, right? They're tearing stuff up, throwing stuff around, and, and mom, you try to put on that nice, calm mom voice, right? And you have to, now, now, James, you're misbehaving, Right? And, and you, you know, you look at him in a way like, I would really slap you right across your face. If we didn't have company right now, we're in front of these people, I would normally slap you. So I want you, I want you to hear the slap in my voice that I'm controlling myself by telling you, now that's not the way we behave. Would you please, now anytime a parent's saying please, you know they're mad. Would you please sit down? Because you're going to make me hurt you in front of these people. Would you please sit down? And for some reason, you know, they just completely act a fool when you're trying to compose yourself and be calm. Has that ever happened before? And so Paul's strength and his patience is being known, seen as a weakness by false teaching. Can I just tell you, it's not often said, especially in an Adventist tradition, but I, I'm, I'm going to stand out here on this limb, and this is about the biggest limb I can find in here, and say that the church has been filled with a lot of false teaching. I would venture to say that a lot of us have a lot of false teachers in our life. There are voices and people of influence that are speaking things for the purpose to minimize the voice that should have authority in your life. Man, I wish I had a lot of time, but I'm just going to get in a little bit of trouble because, see, the, the, Christian, the Christian today, the Christ follower today should be 100% looking at Jesus. We are living in a time when 100% focus on Jesus is absolutely vital and crucial to live this life for God. We do not live in a time where your yes can be no and your no can be yes. We have to have 100% eyes on Jesus because there are false teachers who are breaking down the credibility of the voice of God in this generation in this nation, and in this time. Think about voices in your life. You may say, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't listen to a lot of people. Well, there might be some radio shows. That are teaching falsely. And tearing down the narrative and the voice of God. There might be some TV stations that you watch religiously and there's false teaching about the truth and the reality of what God is doing. There might be some books. There might be some blogs. There may be some articles. There may be some websites. There may be some networks that are presenting something. And while you agree with 95% of it or maybe 98%, there's the 2% that is intended to pull down 
the voice of the one who is speaking the truth and the one who is speaking for your good. See, here's Paul's problem. Paul had come, he had established the church, and as he left, in his absence, these other voices were rising up. And the only reason they rose up, because Paul wasn't there. And this is why we got to be careful to be present in our lives, in the lives of our spouses, in our families, even if you're single, and those you love, that there are times that our absence of our presence can put people in danger because we're unaware of the voices that are speaking according to something different. What false teacher has told you about this person? What false teacher has told you to be afraid of this group? What false teacher has told you that you shouldn't respect this kind of individual? What false teacher could have framed a mindset for you that makes it difficult for you to live around this person? When God sees something different, when the church shows something different, when the truth says that all people belong to God and all people are welcome in his presence, what false teacher has told you that that's the way you're supposed to be treated? What false teacher has instructed you that that's the way you're supposed to treat people what voice in your life needs to be checked and so Paul is checking Paul's nipping it in the bud Paul's making sure that they understand what's happening can we go back to the text I'm not sure if I told the team to put up verse 18 I don't think I did told them to put up 18 and 19 in the message but if they do that would be awesome if not it's okay Earlier in our text, so what we're going to focus on here for, for a second is verse 20 and 22. But I want you to see something that Paul says. Look in your own Bible earlier in this particular passage. What Paul is trying to set up is that he says this, look, don't think that when I told you, when I tell you something, that I'm saying yes and no. He says, look, I don't want you to misunderstand what happened. Because this issue was around Paul not showing up. And Paul's trying to make sure... Because I first came to you, you believed the gospel that I preached. And that gospel that I preached was affirmation and confirmation of my authority in God. And so when I speak, he wants to now paint a picture of the God he's speaking for. And he begins to break down some very theological things. He basically said at the end of that verse, I'm not waffling. I'm not saying yes and no. On again, this is the message version. Wasn't it clear and strong when he talked about how he presented the message? So in verse 20 in the Message Bible, whatever God has stamped, promised, gets stamped with the yes of Jesus. Now this is a very deep theological discussion. You might have to check Dr. Smith's class on this. What Paul is saying is Jesus is God's yes. Jesus is God's yes. Well, what is he saying yes to? How is Jesus God's yes? This process or this story of salvation will be completed. It has not been completed yet. Our salvation has not been fully completed. But this process of salvation really reaches from Eden to New Eden, from the garden to the new garden, to the new earth, and then to the new heaven. The greatest need that mankind needed was what? To be restored to God. 
to be redeemed from sin. When sin happened in the garden, it connected, it disconnected, excuse me, the human race from God. And so the solution needed to be some way to connect us with God, that he might dwell with us and we dwell with him. And so the solution to our greatest need, the solution to our greatest disparity was to introduce the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is the proof, it is God's yes, in the sense that God understood the cry of humanity, understood the need that we had, and sent Jesus to fix the issue and the problem that we created. Now, I don't want to oversimplify that. Because what God is saying from the beginning, when he announces it really way back in Genesis, he says, I'm going to bring a solution to your problem. That automatically, right from the beginning, when you look in Genesis, is a battling of a false teaching between what Satan says and the character of God and what God really feels. Satan tries to compromise that God really doesn't want everything for you. That's his pitch to Eve and Adam, that God's really holding back with this fruit and not letting you experience life. But, G but God knows, hey, after they fall, I'm going to send a solution. So if our greatest need for salvation is answered in Jesus, because God's answer is, you need salvation, you need to be fixed, you need to be restored, and also I want to dwell with you, so I'm going to send Jesus. Jesus is going to do the process of redeeming us. And so therefore, my answer is yes. And the question is, what am I saying yes? What am I asking? Without us even realizing it, we're saying, God, we need help. Our position is that we need help. Our disparity says we need help. And God is answering the cry of our heart without even us articulating it. Because while we were yet sinners, the Bible says, Christ died for us. So Jesus is God's answer, yes. I will provide for you what you really need. So here's the deep concept here. So if our answer is yes, every promise that he says is yes. If our greatest need was Jesus, everything else he promises us, we can know that it's yes because of Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying God's yes to his promises are in the fact that he sent Jesus. Your greatest need has been answered. So everything else I promise you, you can know that I'm going to do it because I've already sent the perfect yes. Paul is breaking it completely down. He doesn't have any time to be unclear. He says, whatever God has promised, get stamped with the yes of Jesus. Can I ask you a personal question? What has God promised you? Let me say it this, let me say it this way. What has he promised you that you don't even know about? What has he already promised that you have no idea he promised it? That you haven't discovered or you haven't believed the fact that he promised it. I know that's hard because we think, now wait a minute, it, it, there are some things that don't apply to me, right? Like I got sick. Like what do you mean? My, my grandfather died. I prayed and they weren't delivered. See, understand the context. If our greatest need is salvation, 
There are some things that we won't understand now. But what he's saying is that I'm saying yes to what I promise. I'm the kind of God that is going to come through for what I promised you. You may be thinking you're asking for salvation for you, but you're actually asking for salvation for your generation. And while I may have given you the cancer or the bad report, I'm giving it to you so that your children can see somebody walk with faith through that illness, and that will set a domino effect down to the generation because they will see grandfather stood for God and the holiness that you're asking for may be greater than just you. The impact of what you want will go carry. So, so let's keep going. Paul says, it's stamped with the yes. In him, he says, this is what we preach and pray, the great amen. So Paul not only says, is Jesus our yes, but he's also our amen. Y'all know when you say amen means you agree. But really in Hebrew, that word meant yes, it's finished, it's complete, it's a done deal, it's a done statement. So amen said, whatever was proclaimed is going to happen. That's what the amen response is. And Paul is saying, not only is he saying yes, he's our amen. He's our promise that it's going to be completed. And so Paul says, yes, all together glorious, or sorry, God's yes and our yes together, gloriously evident. Otherwise, Paul was just basically saying that I'm not saying yes and no. I'm not wavering and being indecisive. That the same yes I preach to you is in agreement with my yes. And what God, what he's saying is that uh, what Jesus has promised and what I am delivering for you is all the same. I am coming to bring you salvation because I've been sent to bring it to you, and I'm not going to do anything that's going to compromise what God has for your life. So God affirms us, he says, making us a sure thing in Christ, putting his yes within us. I want you to get this process. Jesus is God's yes. He's the example that God says, I know what you need, and I'm promising to bring it to you. And it doesn't stop there. He's saying, I want to put that yes in you. I want you to live by the yes. I want you to make decisions by the yes. I want you to internalize the yes. I want you to digest every yes that I've ever promised and ever said, and I want you to live by the yes. I want the yes in you. So Paul completes this particular pericope. It says, by his spirit, that just means pastor, sorry to me to say that. By his spirit, he has stamped us with his eternal pledge, a sure beginning of what he has destined to complete. Remember I said, Paul is trying to explain to them that the reason I didn't come was for your good. Remember, Paul was upset. Paul was upset about the false teaching. Paul was upset that he wasn't being understood. Here's why he's upset. He's not upset because he's personally offended. It's not an emotional upsetness. What he does not want is the gospel to be compromised. And he's upset with people who are splitting the church. 
But here's what I want you to catch about this. This Paul that is writing this epistle, this Paul that is writing this letter, this Paul who is a, a theological master is the same Paul that used to drag people out of their house and kill them. I don't want you to forget, for those who aren't familiar, this, this, is, a, this is a man who's been converted. This is a man who's been changed. This is a man whose reputation was so bad that he would go three or four years after his conversion and people, nobody would show up if Paul was preaching because they were still scared of him. And there was no Instagram or Facebook, nothing like that. They just, you look like Paul, I'm getting out of here. People memorized what Paul looked like because they were afraid of him. This is the same Paul that had dragged, had people dragged out of their houses for believing Jesus. This is the same guy who stood around and hold the coats of those stoning the, uh, Stephen. Now look at, look at this. He wasn't just holding the coats because he was some kind of rookie. He was like the mob boss. Paul was like, yeah, you guys go ahead and handle my light work. But look what God had done in Paul. God had brought him from there to here. Here's what I want you to hear. See, that Paul is not just transferring from a theological, academic, head understanding of grace. He's not just living in a theological, scriptural uh, you know, framework of what Jesus is doing. He's living in the internalized gospel and demonstrating it to people. This is the same Paul that would have gave you a left and right hook if you talk crazy to him. That's Paul. But the same Paul says, you know what? I'm not going to come now because it's going to be too harsh. I don't want to compromise my opportunity for them to understand grace. What happened to Paul? How is Paul able to not just believe the promises, but actually, and not just preach the promises, but actually demonstrate the promises? How did he go from believing to speaking to actually living the grace that he's speaking about? How did it get to the point where Paul actually is living and modeling the grace of Jesus not in his own purse for his own personal benefit, but for the benefit of others. Paul, my lady, my uh, sisters and brothers, has allowed the Holy Spirit to stamp him with approval. He says it in that verse. He says, "But the, his spirit has stamped us with an eternal pledge, a sure beginning." Of what he is destined to complete. Paul is saying something happens when the Holy Spirit is in your life. That there's a stamp of approval. There is a promise, promise of an inheritance. There is something that shifts when you allow the Spirit in your life. Let me try to break it down in two or three minutes or less. Now when we understand that Jesus is our yes. He is our promise of salvation we also understand that our salvation has not yet been completed because we're still here, we're still in sinful flesh, we're still broken, and we're still not fully restored. 
when Jesus returns again, and ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is not going to need to sneak up to this earth. There is no secret rapture. There is no, Jesus doesn't have to tiptoe. Jesus is busting the door wide open because this is the culmination of everything he has done. And so when Jesus returns again, he's coming for those who have been stamped, who have been sealed. But even then, our salvation will not be fully completed until sin and evil and death has been completely swallowed up and a new earth has been created. So we're in the process. So here's the thing. Our inheritance is yet to come. As believers, when we believe in Jesus, the Bible says we are adopted and we become sons and daughters of God, which means we inherit stuff. We don't work for stuff. You don't work for an inheritance. You work because you have an inheritance. Because there's a difference between a worker and an owner. Anybody a business owner in here? If somebody comes to your business before it closes in five minutes, you will serve that person. If you're just an employee there, you will turn off the light and shut the door and say, come back tomorrow. But when you're going to inherit the business, when the business is going to fall in your lap, you understand there's a different concept. And so what Paul is trying to say is we have an inheritance of eternal life. That we do not earn by our works, but we work because it's coming. And so, in Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the evidence of the Holy Spirit in our life is our stamp of approval. In other words, it is our down payment of the inheritance. Oh, I know this is getting theological. I'm trying to break this down as best as I can. The presence of the Holy Spirit in your life means you are preparing to receive the inheritance. The role of the Holy Spirit in your life is to prepare you to be with God. If he doesn't prepare you, and if your heart is not wrenched with his process, you won't be able to fully inherit all that he has for you. And so the Holy Spirit in your life is the down payment. It is the, the proof that you've been stamped with approval. I got to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 because this is where Paul tries to make this a little bit more clear. He says it in passing, but he refers to what we just read. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at it, look at it, look at it with me. Over here in verse 18, I'm going back to uh, the New Living Translation. For a second. Here's what it says in verse, uh, verse 16. Paul begins to, to, talk to talk to them about, look, you guys need to stop letting unbelievers and people who are not trying to do what's right and people trying to tear up the church, you've got to not let them have voice in your life. So Paul says, and what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the living temple of God. We are the living dwelling place of God. God wants to dwell with us. That's the exact thing that he did before the fall. That's the whole process of redemption for us to be able to dwell with him without a filter. Just us and God. 
God says, I still want to dwell with you. Look what Paul breaks down. He breaks this down so good. He says, for we are the temple of the living God, as God has said. Look what Paul is doing. Paul already said in verse 1 that God's promises are yes in Christ. So Paul goes back to the Old Testament, which is the only testament they had, and brings these promises out. He begins to quote from the Old Testament. Here's what he says. This is a promise that God shares. These are the promises that Paul thinks of in his mind. He says, I will live in them and walk among them. Can I just tell you right there, that's a promise. That God wants to live with you and walk among you. God is not distant. God is not passive. God is not standing over you shaking his head like, man, they are really screwing up. That's not God. God wants to walk with you. Look what he says. I will be their people and they, I'm sorry, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's a promise. God says, yeah, I know they're acting up. I know they're a little crazy. I know they got some issues, but those are my people. Those are my kids. They got my last name. I know. I'm working on them. I'm trying. I know they're tearing up the restaurant. I know sometimes I got to bend over and say, would you please not do that? But they're my kids. Look at these promises that he says. I will be their God. I will be there with them. Therefore, he says, come out from among unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Now, I know in modern Christian context, you may hear unbelievers are people who have never believed before. That's different. The unbelievers he's talking about are people in the church but just don't believe. Have the evidence, don't believe. Hear it, don't believe. Don't practice it. Don't care. That's what he's talking about. He says, come out from among them. Stop letting these false teachers and people that are trying to mess up the image of the church separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things, and I will welcome you. God's setting up some house rules. He says, look, if you're going to have this inheritance, you can't do this. You can't eat like this. You're not going to be eating chicken in my Lamborghini. No, this is what I'm saying, because he's saying for some of you single folk, the, the woman I want to give you is a Lamborghini. And no disrespect, but you just keep looking after a Toyota Corolla, like you just keep finding. And ladies, the, the man I'm trying to give you, it's a Bugatti, like he's, that's the level I want to give you, but you keep trying to get a Buick and fix him up, and that's not what I have for you. And I don't want you eating chicken, right, and drinking milkshakes in the Lamborghini. So we got to work on the milkshake thing when you're driving. We got to work on the things you're doing now so that you can handle everything I have for you. So he says, don't touch the filthy things. And I will welcome you. Verse 18, I will be your father and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty, that is a promise. He's declaring to you, I don't care how much you've been addicted to the drugs. I don't care how many problems you have. I don't care your doubts and your fears. I'm trying to tell you that this ends with you being my son and my daughter. I'm not giving up on that. I'm completely devoted to that. And here's what he says, Paul says in verse, the next chapter, the very first verse. He says, because we have these promises, dear friends. Just because 
the promises that Jesus says because the promises that God declares, I've already explained to you that they mean yes. That means he's going to do it. He's not going to waver. He's not going to change his mind. He's going to do it because we have these promises, dear friends. Let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body and spirit and let us work towards complete holiness because we fear God. Paul saying, because of what God promises, what we do is set ourselves apart. And here's the stamp of approval. The Holy Spirit is invited in your life to live. You say, Holy Spirit, come into my heart and tell me what to do. I fired my old boss because that boss was running down the company. I fired my old will, my own desires. That was messing me up. What I need now as a new manager, I need a new team to lead me. And so the Holy Spirit prepares the place so that we can dwell with him. The Holy Spirit opens up our hearts and minds and says, okay, it's time to get rid of some stuff so that you can be a place where God wants to move into. Here's what I love about God. God is not looking for perfect people. He's just looking for willing people. He'll say, you know what? If you just got to let me sleep on the couch, I'll start with that. Just let me sleep on the couch. Let's just talk about the living room area of your life. We don't have to go into the bedroom. We don't have to go in the closet. We don't have to go in the garage. Let's just start right here in the place that everybody sees, right in the living room. And let's work it out. When I bought my first car just a few years ago, it ain't that deep. It's a Toyota Son or a Chevrolet Sonic. I love it. I got another Sonic driver back there somewhere, I think. And I love my car. And one of the things that I did was I went and I made sure that I read all the safety stuff and I did that. This is the first time I've ever bought a new car. And what I loved about it, it was weird for me to drive it off the lot. I mean, it wasn't an expensive car, but it was just new. And I, I just had never experienced that before. And I realized that this car had been stamped with an approval. It had been certified. In other words, if something went wrong with the car, I could take it back, right? If I bought the car from, you know, Left Eye Tony somewhere on the east side, I'd be in trouble. I'd just be getting what I got. But I bought this from the dealership, from the lot, right? So I can get an attitude. No, uh, no, wait a minute. There's a scratch on my seat, okay? I want a new car. Just go get me another one. Here's what I realized about new cars. Really any car, because every car is new at some point. They've been approved. But you know how they've been approved? They've been tested. They put them in the machine, they run them with high miles. They put them through the mud. They put them through the heat. They crash them. They tear them up. They fill them with water. They do all these things to make sure that it's approved. They don't do that to that particular car, but when they're doing this car, they test it. They make sure that everything is approved. And what I want to tell you today is that what maybe you're going through in your life is God's stamp of approval. He's just testing you. He's just running to make sure that you've passed this. We've gotten through this. They can handle this. Because what I want to do is give them more. And God has said, my yes means yes. Everything that I say means yes. And sometimes my no means yes. 
My no just means yes to something else. My wait means yes to something else. My not now means you want the Toyota Corolla and I got a Lamborghini waiting for you. That's what God is trying to say. Is that we've been stamped with approval. The Holy Spirit wants to come in our life and begin to remove the things. Paul had to make sure that the false teachers in that church had to be removed. Paul had to make sure that no one would continue to test him. And it wasn't because he felt, you know, arrogant or he just felt his pride was hurt. Paul just wanted to make sure that the gospel was being heard. And he had to remove those that were speaking against the truth. And that's the same thing that God wants to do in your life. He wants to take the past. Because sometimes the past keeps speaking to you, right? The failed marriage you had tells you you can't be successful in this marriage. The failed business that you started is telling you, don't you think about starting that business again. You messed that up. The class that you failed, don't you even think about being a doctor. Don't you even think about being an attorney. You, you can't even pass English one-on-one. Are you kidding me? And God comes in. And I got to say a good word here because parents don't want their kids to say these words. But just think of the strongest way you can say this. God comes in and says, be quiet. I was thinking of the other one, but you know. God says, hey, past, stop talking. Oh, the, the attitude that you saw, you know, your grandfather, they were racist and they said all that stuff around you. Be quiet. All the people that told you you wouldn't do this, your past, would y'all stop talking? Because I'm talking now. And as far as I'm concerned, I live here. And nobody speaks when I'm speaking. Nobody tells you what to do when I'm here. Because this place has been approved as a dwelling of the living God. And everybody else needs to be quiet and get out. So that's what God wants to do. I want to pray for you this morning, pray with you. There might be somebody today that feels a little overwhelmed with life. They feel like, man, I, I hear what you're saying, but you can't be talking about me. The gospel can't be that simple. Yes, it is. It's that simple that God has, loves you. He'll never forget, give, give up on you, and he will continue to pursue after you because his goal is the promise that he already says that I want to dwell with them. They will be my sons and my daughters. So I want every head bowed, every eye closed. We're going to pray, and then we're going to sing and be dismissed. But for somebody today who just needs to feel, to leave here feeling that the gospel, this message was for them, to leave here feeling that they have been redeemed and been justified. They want to leave here with confidence, knowing that if they surrender their life, surrender their life to you today, that you will speak, and you will speak and quiet the voices that are telling you otherwise. So I want to pray for someone today. What I'm going to do is say a prayer, and then I'm going to ask you if it applies to you to just raise your hand, and I want to pray with you. Father, I pray right now in this moment for someone, maybe some person, some boy, some girl, some man, some woman, some husband, some wife, some grandparent, who feels the weight of the voices that are speaking in their life, and they question confidence of knowing that you are there with them. Some of the 
promises that you have shared are hard to believe. Father, I pray today in this moment that you will heal, that you will restore, that you will set order in the lives and the hearts of people today. That you would give them an assurance and a confidence that if they submit themselves to you, you've already said yes. And that you want to put your yes in their yes in agreement. So I pray for someone today who's rededicating their life to you. I pray for someone today who's giving their life to you for the first time. I pray for someone today who's coming back to faith, who's coming back to God, who's feeling restored and feeling their strength coming back, even now, because they know that you've already said yes, and they understand that the no they see now is really the yes for something else later. So, Father, I pray this time that you would do something powerful and mighty in their lives. And I pause this prayer just for a second to just ask if that was you in that prayer. If there's anybody in here right now who just wants to either rededicate their life or give their life to God for the first time, I want you to do something bold. I just want you to raise your hand. Everybody's eyes are closed. I just want you to raise your hand. Go ahead. Let God see it. Amen. Don't be afraid. Put it up. God wants to see it. Praise God. God bless you. God bless you. Why don't you pray this prayer with me? And for, the, for their benefit, church family, just let's pray it out loud for their benefit and their strength. Say, dear Jesus, I need you. Thank you for your promises. I surrender to you. You are my Savior. You are my King. Send the Holy Spirit in my life to prepare me for what's next. I believe today that you said yes, and I'm saying yes to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to just keep your heads bowed for a second. The Bible says that heaven rejoices when one soul comes back. And I want us, as we open our eyes in just a second, just to give God praise and encourage those who have made that decision. There were some hands that went up, and I want to encourage them. We're going we're gonna to cheer and celebrate that decision, and then we're going to sing. So let's do that on the count of three. We're going to encourage those who have made that decision. We're going to celebrate God for what he's done on the count of three. One, two, three. Come on, let's give God praise for the lives that were changed and the hearts that were mended.